0: Hello and welcome to H2 Orthopedics. My name is Mike Begg. I'm a certified physician assistant, a certified athletic trainer. I have a doctorate degree in medical science and over 30 years of experience in sports medicine, orthopedics, and medical education. My goal is to take your orthopedic diagnosis or injury and help you make sense of it. Welcome to H2 Orthopedics. Hello and welcome to another edition of H2 Orthopedics. My name is Mike Bagg. I'm your host for the show today. And the topic we're going to touch on today is interesting. Um, I've had two separate emails in the last week or so when I was going to get to this probably next week. But then in clinic today, I saw a patient that had this exact same issue or or problem. And it kind of prompted me to to just go ahead and do it today. So uh, adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder is the topic of, uh, of the podcast today. And I hope that, uh, first of all, I hope no, no one out there is suffering from this as this can kind of be a miserable scenario, a miserable situation. Uh, my second hope is that I can answer some questions for you. Although there are some mysteries that revolve around this, um, this condition, um, that we just can't answer. Uh, sometimes that's fairly straightforward and other times it's just really a mystery. Uh, but my goal is to uh, teach you, educate you, and give you the information so you are are uh, loaded with, with the knowledge to make an educated decision regarding your treatment options and what may work best for you moving forward. So the topic, again, uh, two different names, and a uh, Get diving into the literature, we can kind of separate this into two camps, or at least there are uh, there's some out there that believe this. I've always kind of lumped it together: frozen shoulder, adhesive capsulitis. To me, those have always kind of been the same, but there are there's a there's a school of thought out there that really there are two. Uh, different entities that are very similar. I'm not sure I can tease them apart, but uh, we'll kind of talk about it as one and I'll try to tease it apart when it makes sense too. So what is, what is this condition, adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder? It is exactly what the second kind of layman's term frozen shoulder describes. For there's, there's really two pathways you can get there. And this maybe is where the two separate camps come to come to, uh, to their you know, foundation. But I would say there is uh, idiopathic or kind of primary idiopathic, meaning we don't understand there is no real cause uh, or, or real direct you know, source uh, or primary frozen shoulder or adhesive capsulitis where the shoulder joint just gets inflamed and angry and gets stiff and doesn't move. And then there could be post-traumatic or what I would call secondary, and I'm making these terms up, post, primary and secondary, uh, but they're going to be post-traumatic or post-injury where it makes some sense why the shoulder may be sore and then you fall into this trap and, and go down this you know, kind of rabbit hole of of symptoms and pain and problems and issues. So holding true to the H2O format, let's talk about normal anatomy of the shoulder. So if you've heard my shoulder talks before, you probably already have your left hand pointing to the sky. So we're going to be putting our left hand up, looking at our thumb and cupping our fingers just a little bit, cupping the the palm a little bit. That's going to be the socket side or the glenoid side of our shoulder. We're going to make a fist out of the right side and we're going to put the right fist into the left palm. Again, looking at our thumbs on both hands, that's going to be the ball or the humeral head side of the shoulder joint. Those are the two bones that make up the, the glenohumeral joint. Um, around the socket. So around our left hand, around the periphery would be a a gasket or what we would term the the glenoid labrum. Makes the socket a little bit deeper, uh, gives some stability, if you will. And then from nine o'clock over the top, so the tip of our thumb over the top to our knuckle on our small finger would be where the rotator cuff comes off the shoulder blade and past the glenoid, so past the, you know, the palm of our left hand and attaches to these tuberosities or these bumps on the humeral head uh, about where our knuckles are. There's a bigger one where the, you know, knuckles from our, our middle and our kind of long finger, pointer finger, That might be what we would call the greater tuberosity. If we kind of dropped our ring finger off, there'd be a little groove there where the long head of the biceps would run. And then on our small finger, our pinky finger, the knuckle there would be the lesser tuberosity where the front rotator cuff attaches. So four rotator cuff tendons come off the shoulder blade, the tendons or the muscle turns to tendon about where the socket is. And then the tendonous portion attaches to the tuberosities, the lesser in the front and the greater up on top. The four rotator cuff muscles' job is to pull the ball into the center of the socket and stabilize it there. They do have some motor function or motion of the of the ball and socket, but they're really a stabilizing. We call them the dynamic stabilizers of the glenohumeral joint, and they allow the big muscles of the deltoid up on top, the pectoralis or the chest muscles on the front, your latissimus, your big back muscle, or your trapezius, kind of your neck muscles. They kind of come in and help help. The, the rotator cuff stabilizes the, the ball and the socket uh, and uh, allows those bigger muscles to have the power to move your arm and do the do the heavy lifting. If below from three o'clock or the, the knuckle on our our small finger down below uh, to nine o'clock is the capsule. So if you hear the term adhesive capsulitis, we're probably talking about the capsule. And that's a, the best way to describe it as kind of a ligament sac or a, a capsule is what it exactly is. It blends in, t- you know, deep to that rotator cuff, but uh, they kind of work together over the top is the cuff underneath is the capsule to form the the joint, the joint environment where the ball lives inside of the socket lives inside of the labrum lives inside of part of the long head, the biceps lives inside of for the shoulder joint itself. So that's normal anatomy. And typically there's some, some lubricating fluid inside the joint, um, that lining of that capsule and the under surface of the cuff. If you're inside the shoulder, they all kind of blend together. But um, you can see that there's there's blood vessels in that capsule, and there's a lot of nerves in that capsule. There's some thickening bands, which give stability to the shoulder joint that we term ligaments, uh, thickening of the capsule itself uh, in different areas, mostly in the front and below. Um, and they, um, they're defined areas of this capsule. But it's, it's, it's highly vascular and, and highly innervated. So the uh, that's the normal anatomy the abnormal anatomy nothing's going to change necessarily it could and that's where the secondary or post traumatic uh, concept comes into play but true primary kind of run of the mill frozen shoulder adhesive capsulitis is inflammation of that of that joint capsule and if it inf- if it's inflamed long enough becomes chronic enough it becomes thickened and then you kind of build on that so it could be something happened it could be that you and we're walking the dog and it saw a squirrel or a rabbit and it pulled your arm. And at that moment you said, ah, that hurt. And you kind of, you know, scold the puppy and away you go and you forgot about it. Or it could be you, you know, cut down limbs on the tree in the backyard, or you painted the house, or you cleaned the gutters, or <clears throat> you name it, you did some work overhead, or you used the arm in an unusual way you picked up tennis, picked up, you know, pickleball, you, whatever, it doesn't matter. You caused inflammation, you overuse that shoulder and your body kind of gets stuck in an overuse or a chronic inflamed scenario. You sleep on it that night and you aggravate a little bit more. You get up the next day and I don't know, that pickleball is kind of fun. I'm going to go play again, but my shoulder's kind of sore. It'll get better. You know, you get get stuck in the cycle and it typically gets worse and worse and worse. And then it starts to hurt. And by general nature, uh, if something hurts, we avoid it. Humans are cheaters. We get through the day by cheating our way through the day, and so if it hurts to go, you know, lift your right arm uh, up, up, you know, past ninety degrees to grab that coffee cup off the top shelf, you grab it with your left arm, your, your left hand. You just start to avoid the the painful ranges, and then weeks go by, and sometimes months go by. And then you realize that not only does it hurt, but I just physically can't go there. I physically can't lift my arm forward past the 90 degree mark. Uh, it does hurt, but I, I'm something's blocking me now. There's a physical blockage in my range of motion, and that's kind of how people would present to us. And this this patient today presented to me exactly like that. Um, she fit the, the description to a T. So the risk factors of having this typically, but not always. It's females. I've definitely seen it in males, but I'll, I'll say, you know, the literature would support this. It's typically in females. Somewhere around the young age would be around 35 or 40, and then the upper age would be 60 to 70, somewhere in there. Uh, that's kind of the typical age group that we would see this uh, condition developing in. Uh, some patients will report that they had some kind of an injury or, uh, an inciting incident, uh, but they don't really always recall, or they kind of downplay it like, yeah, the dog did run after that rabbit, but I can't, I can't believe that's what it was. Or yeah, I started playing a new sport or I started whatever, you know, clean the gutters. But I do that every year. So it was easy to downplay and not really realize that was the issue that started this whole thing. And then they typically, and, and maybe you're in this boat now, uh, you're a month into it, you're six weeks into it, and you start to feel like, oh man, I'm starting to lose my motion. It still hurts, but I just, I'm starting to feel like I don't have that motion capable and I can see how the mechanics on my shoulder are changing. Uh, the, the ball and socket rotates on the, you know, the ball rotates on the socket, um, which is in the socket is part of your scapula. Your scapula articulates or makes a joint with your rib cage. And there's some muscles that hold it stable to the rib cage that are necessary to have a firm base for the, you know, the arm or the ball to move on. Well, if the, if that, if the ball and socket is becoming stiff, then you have to find somewhere else to have motion. And often you'll find it at that, um, that scapulothoracic joint or the the scapula shoulder blade and the rib cage. And then you start to alter the way you move. So you reach for that coffee cup with the right arm. Normally, most of that motion's in the ball and socket, no problem if that part doesn't work, you're going to shift or rotate your scapula or your shoulder blade on your rib cage. And now all the muscles that are there to hold that scapula or to to do their job are being stretched or used abnormally. And they start to fight back. They start to talk to you in the form of muscle spasms and pain and additional encouragement for you not to use that shoulder. So you can see how this is kind of a vicious cycle where you can just kind of, you know, tunnel down into this rabbit hole pretty deeply, uh, with being human avoiding painful conditions. So again, females, um, unfortunately those who have diabetes or thyroid disease or have had this problem before are predisposed. I'm not sure I can give you an exact reason for that. It's likely something to do with the inflammatory process within our body, but I can't tie that to an exact uh, explanation. Um, History of injury. So, you'd, if so that again, the primary is primary source of this, or kind of standard, run of the mill textbook would say uh, unknown etiology. We don't know. So I always uh, kind of joked, but if there was a medical student, a PA student, or athletic trainer, a medical student that was with us for a, a rotation and they were, you know, they were kind of getting on our nerves and getting in the way, I would always just say, you know, I'm, I have an assignment for you. I want you to go describe to me with literature, the etiology of frozen shoulder, and I'd send them off to the library for an afternoon. Uh, we'd get our work done and they'd come back and they're saying, Oh, there isn't one, I don't know what to tell you. Um, it oftentimes made them kind of uh, concerned. They couldn't find the answer, but but they learned. They learned that there really isn't a great explanation, again, for that standard primary idiopathic frozen shoulder. Now you can have the same scenario that I described with an injury. So you can have an injury to the rotator cuff, you can have an injury to that long head of the biceps, or you can have an injury to uh, the acromial clavicular joint, which is up above the shoulder, the ball socket part of the shoulder joint, a little ligament um, injury up there. Uh, all of those and many, many more neck injuries, you know, different things, rib injuries probably, uh, could cause you to not wanna move your shoulder normally and if you don't you move it normally for an extended period of time, you can't move it normally. So again, that would be in my mind or this description a secondary source of frozen shoulder or adhesive capsulitis. So how do we work this up? Your story, your history is definitely key here. So we we ask you and and give you give her your history. It's really the time, the timing of all this. How long ago did this start? Well, four to six weeks or more. Um, was there an injury? No, not that I can recall, except maybe it was this, maybe it was that, but not usually a clear day. last Tuesday at 10 o'clock I got, you know, I got run over by a freight train and now I know why I, you know, have a headache, nothing like that. Um, the exam shows limited range of motion as you would expect. So I'm just going to assume, let's say the right shoulder is, is involved. So standing, we would have you raise your, your arms in the front of you and say, take it as far as you can. The left arm would go all the way up to your your biceps or your arm is touching your ear, basically. The left arm may only go to 90 degrees or straight out the motion that we typically see the biggest limitation is what we call external rotation. So you pin your elbows to your to your rib cage or to your belt line. Your fist is, is pointing straight forward, meaning your forearm is parallel to the ground, and you try to rotate outwards, like opening the door. And the involved right side in this case would be limited both in active, when you're doing that motion, and in passive, when I'm trying to do that motion for you. Oftentimes there's a pain a symptom that's reported, but sometimes you just physically can't do that. That's also something we see when we have a rotator cuff injury. So we need to uh, determine whether this is, is pathologic. Is there something underlying? Typically, if you have a rotator cuff injury, I can move your shoulder, but you can't. So the passive motion should not be limited in, in those secondary sources of frozen shoulder, which is kind of the interesting little twist there. It's a way we can kind of help to identify whether we need to take the workup further. So the external rotation abduction or taking your elbow away from your rib cage, like a wing, like you're trying to fly or flap like your arms, like a bird uh, often is kind of the second thing that we notice or second range of motion that is limited in both active and passive internal rotation, bring your hand behind your back and bring your your hand in that forward plane are certainly part of this big picture, especially as this progresses or advances and more of that capsule gets gets thickened, inflamed, and kind of tightens or scars down. So how do we that's the physical exam and the history, we would get an x-ray to make sure that there isn't something that we can see obvious. You know, we always worry about the worst things. So get an x-ray and look at the, you know, the bony structure, look and make sure there's nothing abnormal from a from just a gross structural standpoint. And then sometimes, and and I would say often, we would take this as far as getting an MRI to look to see, is there a secondary cause? Do you have a degenerative rotator cuff tear? Let's say you're that 65 to 70 year old who comes in, you didn't really have a good story. What did happen shouldn't have made these symptoms as significant as they are. But they did because your rotator cuff is sixty-five or seventy years old and it just has this natural degeneration, which we know happens with age. And sure enough, hey, there's a there's a rotator cuff tear that you were unaware of. It was under the radar, but it led to these kind of low level symptoms that suddenly have, you know, grown and now have this it presented as a frozen shoulder. Uh, scenario. So we would get an MRI on that MRI. Again, we're looking for the pathology. Did you have a rotator cuff injury? Do you have arthritis? Uh, But specifically for this adhesive castellitis scenario, we would see thickening of that, of that joint capsule. You can actually see the tissues thickening. You could see thickening or swelling within the rotator cuff tendons, sometimes within the tendon of that long head of the biceps as well. So that's our workup, history, physical exam with limited range of motion, both passive and active, and then x-rays, which typically are normal, and then an MRI, which may or may not show other pathology, but typically will show those, that inflamed or angry tissue that we're talking about. So treatment options. What do we do about this crazy thing that came out of the blue? Well, if you wanted to play it out, you can play it out. And the literature will say, I'm not sure I've met any patient that's willing to go through this for this duration, but the literature would say one to three years of dealing with these limitations and the body will run its course and eventually things will break down and loosen up and you go back to a functioning shoulder. You're at risk for having it to develop again, but that could happen. I have yet to see someone in our office that has gone through a three year course of ignoring uh, a problem in their shoulder to get to that point. Does it happen? Absolutely. There's a lot of patients that are a lot of people that never become patients that deal with this on their own. And away you go. If you came in to see me, I would say, and we came up with this diagnosis. I would highly encourage you to see physical therapist because they can definitely help you decrease the inflammation, decrease the pain, decrease the, the factors that are limiting your motion and help you stretch things out. It's not a quick fix. It is typically a very long process in therapy, but therapy will help accelerate that recovery period along with physical therapy. Oral anti-inflammatories, if you can take them, you don't have any other issues, uh, are definitely helpful. So things like ibuprofen or um, Aleve or even prescription strength anti-inflammatories. A topical anti-inflammatory, like a diclofenac cream, may be helpful. It has to penetrate through the skin, the deltoid muscle, the rotator cuff tendons, and, and different areas or or different tissues to get down into that joint capsule, uh, but it certainly is not going to hurt you. Uh, So a topical anti-inflammatory may be helpful. I would start there with physical therapy and the -the um, over-the-counter anti-inflammatories. We typically talk about modifying activity, but at this point your activity is already modified. So don't aggravate it, but try to use it. And then if that doesn't get you where you need to be and quite honestly patience and time is the key in, in all these things a steroid injection or a local steroid or anti-inflammatory injection in either the subacromial space which is above the rotator cuff the intraarticular space which is the joint itself or my preference unless there's a reason not to both we would do that injection in both to decrease that inf- inflammation in all those tissues. The capsule is actually down below in that glenohumeral space. But again, we can see thickening of that rotator cuff. So if we can bathe both top and bottom of the cuff, why not? And, and that steroid injection is typically the ladder that takes you from a a certain level of function where you're not happy, you climb the ladder to, ladder to a higher level of function where you're happier, and then physical therapy and anti-inflammatories and all the other things we talked about can, can often get you to the point where this has a breakthrough moment and you're good to go. If all of that fails, there is a surgical procedure or at least an interoperative procedure that we can do in somewhat of a staged fashion. Uh, the first step would be to take you to the operating room as if you're going to have surgery, you go through the same preoperative you know, setup, IV, talk with the anesthesiologist, you will likely have some type of anesthesia. And then we, once you're anesthetized or can't feel or resist anything, we would just take your arm through range of motion and stretch out or break through that scar tissue. That is called a manipulation under anesthesia. And I would describe that to a, to a patient as several physical therapy visits, all kind of bundled into about five minutes. Uh, we stretch things out. We try to keep your pain under control for as long as we can with some of the anesthesia t- tricks that they have with catheters and nerve blocks and then pain medication. And then you immediately go back to your physical therapist and get back into the same protocol or program that we talked about with stretching and, and range of motion exercises. If we feel like you have a case that is a little more advanced prior to or kind of in conjunction with that manipulation, they, the surgeon may also put a camera or an arthroscope in your shoulder and small tools to actually go in and remove or break through bands of scar tissue along with that manipulation. And ultimately, this will kind of put you at a new level of, of uh, freedom of motion that hopefully you can maintain with physical therapy. So there it is. That's the frozen shoulder adhesive capsulitis story. Again, I can divide it into this primary where it just kind of develops from somewhat of an unknown source uh, or secondary where you have an injury that's underlying uh, that's actually driving the, driving the bus here on this. Um, and again, the workup should identify uh, which camp you fit in, which, which category fits you best. But the treatment is typically very similar unless that underlying, that secondary uh, reason is something that needs to be addressed. Like I say, a rotator cuff injury or arthritis of the shoulder, another issue. So be aware of that. Uh, if your shoulders hurt, don't ignore it. Try to go through range of motion. If you're struggling with that, don't just think it's going to get better with time. Uh, really act on it. Uh, it's better to, to kind of be aggressive early on to make sure this doesn't develop than try to catch up later when it's it's kind of a hard fight to win uh, if this uh, problem sets up real real significantly in the shoulder. So uh, adhesive capsulitis, frozen shoulder. Uh, that was uh, sent in uh, to separate people. Uh, Emails from uh, Mary in California and from Joe in uh, Colorado. And uh, they got a hold of me through the uh, email at topics at h2orthopedics.com. Send your questions, send your comments, send your your concerns to me. I'll try to answer them directly. And oftentimes we'll just do this. We'll just do one show here real quickly. uh, Go through the, the whole H2O format of describing normal anatomy, injured anatomy, workup, and then treatment options. So you can figure out what is best for you moving forward uh, to match up with your uh, recovery goals. So I appreciate the, uh, the emails. And like I always say, do your best to stay active, stay healthy, and put a smile on someone else's face. I'll talk to you later. Hey, it's Mike here. I hope this episode is helping you out and answering some questions. If I'm not hitting every topic right on for you, if there's something specific that you have about your injury, uh, or you want to discuss unique findings on the exam or your history, your MRI, your x-rays, whatever it might be, head to our website at h2orthopedics.com and scroll to the bottom for an opportunity to sign up for a virtual visit where we can either have a Zoom call, we can do a telephone call, whatever it might be, and we can discuss the specifics of your injury in more detail and hopefully get the answers you're looking for. Again, that's h 2 orthopedicscom Scroll to the bottom for the virtual visit, and I will talk to you then.